Mike Rowe, Dirty Jobs Mike Rowe, in case you're wondering who I'm talking about. He's one of my favorite storytellers, somewhat of a philosopher. All of us are theologians in one sense, one way or another, and Mike Rowe delves into that a little bit. He's not a very good theologian, but he is a good storyteller. He wrote this. We appear to be coming to terms poorly, I might add, with the fact that we simply don't know what to believe anymore. In an era of, quote, fake news, unquote, every claim must now be viewed with deep suspicion. In the era of Google, anyone can research anybody. In an era of social media, anyone can broadcast from their own private network. But of course, in an era where we can't trust the news, why in the world would we trust anything that we read or see online? Thus, he says, we're stuck in a tautology of doubt. Time out for just a second. Tautology is a, it's a literary term. Writers sometimes will repeat themselves. And they'll repeat themselves sometimes using different words, but they repeat themselves to, to make a point, okay? That's what tautology is. So what Rose says, we live, we are struck in a tautology or repetition, he says, of doubt. Our search for truth has been replaced by a quest for contradiction. And when we find the inconsistency, as we always do, the baby goes out with the bathwater. How do you know what to believe? Last week I raised the point, kind of in a form of a question, that many people in the church and many people outside of the church know a whole lot about this book that I hold in my hand, the Bible. Not nearly as many know what this book is about. You may know a lot about the Bible. Do you know what the Bible is about? Do you know what the point of this book is? The point of this book is a promise. Now, there are promises, plural, but it all points to a promise. As, as Mark Dever says in his two-volume series, it's promises made in the Old Testament and promises kept in the New Testament. And all of those promises zero in on Jesus, whom Paul says is in the King James, the yes and amen of all of God's promises. So, as we saw last week, God's promise to bless his creation and bless those who take God at his word is made early in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, repeated throughout the Old Testament, and then fulfilled in Christ. And David is that linchpin, if you will. He is that, he is that place where that promise made in the Old Testament initially to Abraham and the promises fulfilled in Jesus, David is, is that connecting point. John Woodhouse says, in that sense, David is the central human figure in the Bible. He is the most crucial link between Abraham and Jesus. So I entitled the sermon today, God's Covenant with David, and it is kind of a part two on what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The, the problem with that title is that we don't see the word covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's not in this chapter. 
However, there are other places in the, in the Bible where this chapter is referred to as the place or these words are referred to as God's covenant. Last week, I read a portion out of Psalm 89. I'm not going to turn there and read that again, but Psalm 89 begins with these words. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever with my mouth. I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So the psalmist refers to God's promise to David as his covenant with David. Later on in 2 Samuel, David himself will say, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant. David understood it as God's covenant. Later on in Second Chronicles 7, God is speaking to, revealing himself to Solomon, and he says, As for you, Solomon, if you walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father. This is God's covenant to David. It's one of many. God made a covenant with Adam. It's called the Edemic Covenants. Theologians call it the covenant of works. It is a conditional covenant in one sense, because the covenant with Adam was, if you will walk in obedience to me, I will bless you. Well, he didn't. He disobeyed, which is why this is another sermon for another time. This is why we have a new Adam, a better Adam in Jesus who fulfills that works covenant. He did obey perfectly, and we are blessed through him. There is God's covenant that comes later on with Noah. I'll never flood the earth again. And in that, even God's redemptive purposes are sealed up in a sense of, this world will stand until I have done what I have promised I will do with it, which is redeem it. He then makes a covenant with Abraham. We saw that last week, or with Abram more specifically. That in Abram, in Abraham, through his descendants, all of the world would be blessed. I'll talk more about that in a second. And then God makes this covenant with David. Look at it with me. And again, I'm going to read from the beginning of chapter 7 down through verse 17. Now, when the king lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go, tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I moved with all the people of Israel, I did, excuse me, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture. 
from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that to you... That the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. With the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Let's pray. Lord. I pray simply that you would take these words, this revelation, Lord, this vision you gave to your prophet and just, Lord, implant it in each of our hearts. It happened a long, long time ago, Lord. We know that. But your word is alive. And I pray, God, that this living word would pierce each of our hearts so that you, O Lord, would work and move according to your perfect plans and your purposes. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. David's all about what he's going to do for God. Right? And all of us who love the Lord in some way can fall into this kind of same pattern. Um, This is what I'm going to do for the Lord today. And that's okay as far as it goes. We will see in David's prayer next week that... We have to be certain that our desire to serve the Lord is not in some way a desire to ingratiate him to us. God, I'll do this for you. And it's kind of unspoken, you know, the, the thin print down there at the bottom of the contract is if I do this for you, then I can expect you to do this for me. And leaping off the page of this passage of Scripture is God saying, no, David, you will not now, nor will you ever be the one who gets any credit for what it is that I'm about to do. God will never be the debtor. He will never be ingratiated to us. And that's something that he makes clear in this passage of Scripture. So what David does, excuse me, what God does is sit David down and reverse the action. Changes it completely. And what happens in this passage of Scripture if you if you go back and look at it in the Greek, and Greek is so excuse me in the Hebrew, and and I loved I loved Hebrew because it was a picture language, and I learned by pictures. Now I've forgotten most of the pictures I learned in Hebrew, so I you know I still try to go back and look at it. There's 18 verbs in nine verses here, and God is the subject of every one of them. God is the one. At work, I've gone through my Bible and I've highlighted them. 
I have moved with my people of Israel. I took you from the pasture. I have been with you. I have cut off your enemies. I will make you a great nation. I will appoint a place. I will plant them. I will give. I will make you a house. I will raise up your offspring. I will establish your kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. I will discipline him. I took it from small, from Saul and I put Saul away from before you, he says in verse 15. God is the one working here. David is the one sitting and listening. That's it. And as God just recounts over and over, he's saying, David, this is what I am doing for you and for those who will follow after you. Just sit and listen, David. And he will be amazed, as we'll see in the prayer that follows. So as we look specifically at these verses where I cut off last week, starting there in verse 12. The first thing that God makes clear in this covenant with David is that, David, your days will end, but your dynasty will not. And again, it's a play on words. David wants to do what? He wants to build God a house. By that, it is a structure. And it will be a massive and a beautiful thing to see when it comes. But David says, you would build, I mean, God said, I did this last week, didn't I? I kept saying David and God back and forth. Correct me on that. Susan, you weren't in here last week, and I was counting on you to be the one to correct me in that. You heard. Oh. Okay. So if I do that again, just just call it out. I'll try not to do that. So David is sitting. God is speaking. And God says, you're going to build me a house? When have I ever? Ever ask someone to build me a house? He hasn't. And the house that God is speaking of here is not a dwelling. It's a dynasty. It's, it's, a, it's a dynasty. And so, David, your days will end, but your dynasty will not. And I love what Ralph Davis says about this covenant that God makes with David. Death does not annul God's promises. Not this one, not any of them. Death does not annul God's promises. David will lie down in the grave, and God will raise up his descendants. And the key word here is not clearly translated in the ESV. It's the word seed in the Hebrew, offspring. It's important to see that because God is saying to David, these who come will come from you, David, literally out of you in one sense. And it's the term that God used when he gave that promise to Abraham back in the Old Testament in Genesis 12. And there's a certainty to this word. I will do it. I will raise up. But there's also ambiguity in this word. Because in the Hebrew, as in the English, seed can mean what? It can mean one. I have one seed in my hand. Or it can be what? A bag of seed It's not always plural in the S sense. And here it's the same thing. So is is it a singular or is it plural? Well, it's yes, it's both. Clearly it's plural when God makes this promise to Abraham, right? 
He says in Genesis chapter 13, and I'll just read this. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be counted. That's plural. Paul says it's singular. In the book of Galatians, in chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, Now the promises were made to Abram and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ, Paul says. So Paul says the promise is about one particular seed, singular, Jesus So it's both. God is saying to David, David, you will lie down, but I will raise up your seed after you. And there's a double meaning in that. I will raise up a whole bunch as a dust of the earth who will be redeemed by one seed. David, he will come from you. So David's offspring is plural in one sense, but it's singular. Abraham's offspring are singular in one sense, but they are many. It is Christ and his people. Here's the point of what I'm I'm looking at here. God's promise to David is not just that descendants will come from him, but a savior will come from him, a rescuer. So God's promise to Abraham is not just a promise of succession. It's a promise of salvation from you, David. This will come. I will do it. Secondly, though, in this covenant that he makes, David's desire is to build God a house. And that desire is denied. But that house will be built. It will be built by David's son. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In David's time, okay, in that time frame, that generational time frame, that house would be built by David's son Solomon. And I'm not going to take the time to develop that, but to go into it. But David is going to be so gracious and generous in seeing that his son can be obedient to the Lord. I'll touch more on that next week. What a father he is in an earthly sense. That his desire is to see his son be faithful to God. And he's going to do everything and give extravagantly. So that his son can be faithful in his walk with God. So David, in his time, his son would build that house. But there is so much more there, right? I mean, we read that. And obviously with our perspective of the Old and New Testament, we see that. But the early church father, Tertullian, said, if you tell me 2 Samuel 7 is just about Solomon, you will send me into a fit of laughter. Because Christ, he says, rather than any other, was to build the temple of God, and that is to say, a holy manhood wherein God's spirit might dwell as in a better temple. Christ, rather than David's son Solomon, was to be looked for as that son of God. Christ is the one to come who will build God's house. Is that not what Jesus said? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you in my father's house, he says, are many houses, some translations say. Jesus has gone to prepare a house, a place for us. But Jesus is also preparing us as his house. Is that not what Peter said? 
that we as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house? Yeah, exactly right. We are being built up into this spiritual house and we are chosen and precious before God as those living stones. So here Christ is building us a house in heaven, but he is building us as his house. So in one sense, Solomon is a time-constrained fulfillment of this promise, and Jesus is the eternal fulfillment of that. Okay? So let's keep going and we'll tie all this together. Here's the next thing he says. Your son, David, will be my son. Notice what he says. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. There's a lot here. There's so much that gets into the nature of the Godhead, the makeup of the Trinity, The understanding between the fact that Jesus is both a descendant of David and the eternal Son of God. Come behold the wondrous mystery. This is, this is what we just sang about. It is, it is amazing. It is awesome. In the book of Exodus in chapter four, God makes this statement about his people, plural, about Israel. He says, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. So in one sense, David is the fulfillment of Israel in the sense of his relationship to God. That descendant that would come from David is that fulfillment of Israel. If you read in the book of Galatians and understand what's going on there and going on in Ephesians, as Paul makes that statement, those statements there, we as the church are the new Israel, descendants of Abraham by faith. There's so much going on here in one sense. So in that immediate sense, God is making this amazing statement about David's son Solomon, who would later build that temple. But there's even there... Some a sense of unconditional and conditional. So here's what here's what we read in First Kings eight. Listen to this. I'm in First King eight, verse twenty two. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and he said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on the earth beneath, keeping covenant. And showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand you have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep your servant David, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him. Saying, you shall not like a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, let your word be confirmed that you have spoken to your servant David, my father. Did you see that two big words there in the middle of that? If only your sons pay close attention to their way. Those words would be repeatedly lived out in these descendants of David that are to follow. 
when your son commits iniquity. Our God is a realist. It's not if, it's when. David, when your sons sin, they will be disciplined. And some commentators, theologians say that this idea here of being disciplined with the stripes of the sons of men or with the rod of men is that God would use men to bring about this discipline, which he does. But it's a sordid, sad history as we see what begins to happen with David's sons. It's even seen in David himself. And as that language is applied and this, as this is, is lived out throughout Israel's history, Israel follows the lead of their king. And when the king is faithful, the people are. When the king is unfaithful, the people are unfaithful. It just continually plays out. Like the king's actions determine the fate of the nation. And so what happens here is repeatedly these sons fail. Which creates a predicament in one sense. The psalmist in Psalm 89, I've read a portion of that now two weeks in a row. I did not go further in Psalm 89, but I would invite you to turn over there with me for just a second. Because after taking the first half of Psalm 89 and just declaring with great boldness and with great faith that God's steadfast love will be built up forever, that as the heavens are established, so is God's faithfulness. He says in verse 3, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. But then look down in verse 38. Psalm 89, 38. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have turned back the edge of his sword. And you have not made him stand in battle. Down in verse 46. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Verse 49. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which you, which by your faithfulness, you swore to David. God's promises are sure. His promise of discipline is sure. His promise of judgment is sure. And this idea that is repeated here forever, six times in this chapter, the word forever is used. We have a problem with forever this throne standing and the reality of God's judgment, if, if all we read is on the pages before us. Were it not for the rest of God's revelation, were it not for the understanding that we have of this in the big picture, this would be a terrible tragedy, right? And it is tragic to see what begins to unfold in David's family. It is a train wreck. But David's singular son, the one that Matthew talks about in the beginning, who is the son of David and the son of Abraham. The one that Luke talks about, who is the son of David, but goes all the way back to Adam to show us that he is also a son of God. 
the one that Peter would stand up and proclaim in Acts chapter 2, that David saw him both as his son and as his Lord, this son is the fulfillment of this promise. And what's amazing about this is that this is a promise of grace. This is a promise of grace that runs throughout the Old Testament. This is a promise that says that regardless of sin, God's redemptive purposes will stand. So just as in the first promise, David's death will not annul God's promise, David's sin and the sins of his sons all the way down to you and me will not annul God's promise. Death can't crush it and neither does sin because David's descendant in Christ is the answer to that. It's the promise of grace. The promise still stands. Hannah, remember Hannah's prayer, Hannah's prayer earlier in the book of 1 Samuel? He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked he shall cut off in darkness, for, by, for not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. God's anointed will be strengthened. He will endure. The prophet Ezekiel saw it as a promise of grace. Even in light of God's judgment, he looked forward to God's salvation. Here's what Ezekiel says in chapter 34. I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned. I will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd. Generations after the day of David, Ezekiel says, My servant David shall be king over them. Jeremiah in chapter 23. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel will dwell secure. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Ezekiel saw it. Jeremiah saw it. Isaiah saw it more clearly than any of them. Right? We remember those prophecies. We read them two weeks ago. We read a portion of them last week. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 9 and once again just be reminded of God's faithfulness to his own promise. Through his son. Through David's son. Isaiah chapter 9 It says in verse 6, we know this, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. What's his name going to be called? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. With justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal, the enthusiasm, the power of God will do this. But it doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like it when all we see is the remnant of God's judgment. God's just wrath poured out on the sins of David's sons. But Isaiah saw something else, didn't he? Turn over two verse, two chapters to chapter 11. 
when God's judgment rolls through the thicket of man's sin, it says at the end of chapter 10, the Lord of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. Great in height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. That's this picture, I think, of God's judgment. But there's nothing left but a stump. But what does it say in verse 1 of chapter 11? There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And it goes on to just recount the fruit of this sevenfold spirit being poured out on this root that comes up from the stump. And this root is Jesus. What a picture that is. What a promise of grace. What a promise that God is going to accomplish his purposes. You see, the last point here, David's imperfect sons cannot fulfill the promise that is coming. Do you see how it ends there? Your name, he says, will be magnified. Wait a minute, let me get back to my passage. Yeah, there. I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body. God says, I'll build him a house. I'll be to him a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. My mind, even as I've been working through this now for several weeks and just thinking about how all this unfolds in the New Testament. That God promises to discipline David's sons. But there ought to be a, there ought to be a, a difficulty in our mind of seeing how that equates to Jesus, right? Because he knew no sin. There was no sin on him, right? Perfect, spotless in every way. And the Lord cast on him the iniquity of us all. There is discipline for God's perfect son, the son of David, the son of man. But that discipline is the punishment that comes upon you and me, that should come upon you and me for our sin. The wrath of God that's poured out upon us is put on Jesus. Solomon would get the stripes of men. Jesus would get the stripes by which we who put our faith in him are healed. It's come behold the glorious mystery. It's just astounding to see. I mean, every time I read through this and think through it, I think, God, just impress upon me the awe, the amazement, the wonder. And this is a crazy gospel we believe in, church. It is crazy. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory and we deserve his just wrath. And instead of him pouring that out on us, he gives. He gives his son so that we would put our faith and trust in him and believe and not face that wrath. It is an amazing thing to see unfolding before us. Let me just let me just jump into our applications here and just kind of tie all this together. 
This covenant that God makes with David is in so many ways an invitation. It's an invitation to you today. I, I, I touched on, but I did not read Isaiah chapter 55. Listen to what it says. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. There's this promise that God is making. Son of man, I mean to to sons of men like you and me, daughters, Human flesh, sinful, rebellious creatures. Why, he says, do you keep wandering around looking for what only I can provide? God's covenant invitation that he makes through David to you is come and receive. Come, be healed. Come, be refreshed. Come and receive what only by God's grace you can receive. The greatest enemy you and I face is the enemy of death. And God's son, David's eternal son, has conquered that, right? Isn't that what the writer of Hebrews says? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, talking about Jesus, partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all of those, all of us, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's God's invitation. Come receive this gift that he offers. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ today. Second application or second kind of general application is God's covenant blessing is for all nations. His promise to Abraham was that through Abraham all the nations of the world would be blessed. That promise runs right on through David. Jeremiah chapter 33 and verse 22. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant. Those offspring are children of faith. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So this promise of grace that flows down through what at times is a troubled river of humanity. This promise of grace flows down and it is unstoppable until God's redemptive purposes are concluded as we read in Revelation. And this is a promise for all nations. And we should share it. And we can share it in all confidence. That's the promise that was given there to David. And he's blown away by it, as we'll see next week. He's blown away by God's grace and mercy in and through him. So, church, let us not forget all that we remember and all that we hear repeatedly. And and as we heard this morning, even through the Advent wreath, let's just be amazed again at this crazy story, at this crazy gospel, at this crazy love and grace. Thirdly, as I read a minute ago out of the book of Isaiah, God's gracious blessing through David is eternal. Forever, 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 forever. Six times we read it in this chapter. That's a long time. 
And everything around me is brief. That brief. In that perspective. In that paradigm of eternity. And when God says of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over it to establish it for from this time forth and forevermore, as he says in verse seven of chapter nine, God's gracious blessing through David is eternal. And so let's live it. By that, I mean, we live in the boldness and in the confidence that God does keep his covenant promise. I do know what to believe. And I do know what helps me understand everything else. And it is this word. It is God's word. It is God's truth. Our first government is the government of Jesus. Period. Period. And I live in the confidence of that government. I live in the confidence of that reign. I live in the confidence of that righteousness and that justice. And it's in the confidence of that then that we can live boldly knowing the outcome. We can live it out now with boldness because we serve King Jesus. We can live it out gratefully, as we'll see in David's prayer next week. One of the things that David comes away from this understanding that I pray we come away understanding, too, is that God does not need a single one of us. But God, in his grace, invites us. God, in his grace, calls us. God in His grace saves us and fills us with His Spirit and then allows us to serve Him. Not so we can earn something, but because we've been given something, we serve. And so we live it out gratefully. And we live it out generously. There's a deep awareness of this in David's life. I touched on it last week. The pattern in David's time and in our time, too, is I'm going to do this for my God. I'm going to make his name great by what I do for him. In David's time, if you believed in an idol, you built a big house for that idol, and that idol then was in debt to you. God says, I'll have none of that. I'm building my house of salvation, and I invite you to come sit in it and just listen. And as you sit and listen, you're going to be changed. And then you'll go out and serve. And you'll do it boldly and gratefully, but you'll also do it generously. And so David wants to give back. He wants to pour out. And he does give back. He gives back in, in financial numbers that we can't begin to fathom. But when he sees God's grace poured out richly on him, then he becomes this, this picture of generosity himself. And that's what we see from this covenant. God is so generous. God is so gracious. God is so good. Church, I do know what to believe. And we have seen it here in this passage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your promises that in Jesus are absolute and sure. Death does not change them. Sin does not crush them. Time does not make them go away. Lord, forever is a long time. Help us just live in the light of that eternity. 
If there is anyone here today in this room or someone listening or watching maybe that has never trusted in Jesus, just impress upon their soul the length of that. God, just how long eternity is. And that you have made a way for us to spend that with you, not separated from you. Thank you for Jesus, your son, descended from David, descended all the way from Abraham and all the way from Adam. And God, thank you for the eternal promise that's found in Jesus. I pray that someone would trust in that promise of salvation. And that the rest of us, Lord, would live in the light of the reality of that forever promise you made to him. That we would live boldly and confidently, graciously and generously. Lord, thank you for how kind and good you are to us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.